together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were cre created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon. It's good to be with you, even though that sounds very strange to say that. All of my notes that I wrote earlier say good morning, so if I confused that you'll understand why. We are continuing our Advent series in Colossians. And as we talked about last week, there are many ways to do Advent. You can focus on the birth narratives and focus on what Jesus actually did when he was born, or you can focus on the people that he impacted, or you can come back to the Old Testament and see what, how it anticipated Christ. Or what we're doing is you can focus on who is this person who was born? Who is this one who came? And Colossians ties together Jesus' identity with his activities. For instance, last week we saw that he's the creator of all that there is. This baby who was born is the center of the universe. He's the source of everything that there is. He's the focal point toward which everything moves. And in that sense, you, you have to have him at the center of your life if you actually want to make sense out of life. If you don't have him at the center of the universe, the center of your life, Life doesn't make sense. You can't make sense out of it. That was verses 15 and 16. Verse 17 summarizes that centrality. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, Jesus is supreme over all of the universe. He's the glue that keeps it all together. He's the one that makes it possible to continue existing. Now, the next verse, verse 18, is going to talk about how he's supreme over his church which to my mind just kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if he's supreme over everything in the universe, then logically it flows that he would be supreme over the church. But the transition word from verse 17 to verse 18 confuses me. The transition word there is and. You have to have a transition, I get that. But that's not the one that I would have chosen. Because if I'm thinking that he's supreme over all that there is, isn't the church part of all that there is? Why would you say and? The transition ought to be more like therefore. 
He's supreme over everything that there is. Therefore, he's supreme over the church. That's not what the text says. And that word and is really in the Greek text, so we have to take it seriously. And if we take it seriously and we read it with the, uh, the way that it's supposed to be read, the way that it's intended, then you read something like, he's supreme over everything that there is and in addition to being supreme over everything, he's also supreme over the church. And I think, how does that work? That's the challenge for this afternoon. Now, let me just sort of make a real brief aside. In, in, in a teaching, in a message, what, what are the, the different options? You, you try to help people grasp something mentally. You try to speak in a way to inform. Or you try to move people. You try to give them something that, that grabs inside. Today, we're going to focus much more on the, here's something that you need to know. I want to help you think about the larger world. And therefore, if you can understand the larger world, you'll be able to better understand your place in this larger world. So let's think then about the church and this and. I think that sounds odd to us because we are used to thinking of the church as a smaller subset of the larger universe. We think of her as smaller than the nations, as less powerful than the nations. At best, the church is what she's tolerated by the nations, by the surrounding society. Sometimes her beliefs clash with the society's beliefs, and you, you wind up with you know, being criticized by the larger society. At worst, you're persecuted by society. That's how we tend to see the church. Smaller, weaker than everybody all around us. That is not how God sees the church. Renewal, that is not how he sees you. It's not how he sees you as an individual within his church. C.S. Lewis draws out the disparity between our perspective and God's perspective in his book, The Screwtape Letters. If you've not read this book, you really need to. Come back to it probably every other year. It's a fictional work about an older demon who's mentoring a younger demon, and the younger demon's been given responsibility to tempt a young man away from faith in Christ. And this younger demon has really failed badly. Young man has declared faith in Christ. He's now attending church. That's not good in the demonic realm. But the older demon doesn't think all is lost, and so here's his counsel to the younger demon. He says to him, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But, fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient, all this young man sees, is the, he's talking about a building here, is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer, with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the pew, next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of these, those neighbors sing out of tune 
or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Now what is Lewis saying? He's saying we don't tend to see the church as she is. We tend to focus on the immediate, on the here and now, on what we can see in front of us. And so the church to our eyes is small, she's weak, she's immature, and in Lewis's words, therefore, ridiculous. We don't see her as she is. We see her what? In her infancy. We see her as numerically smaller, located within these larger, more powerful, more refined secular nations. In other words, we see the current reality that Paul describes in his first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 126, he says, When you were called to faith, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish, what is weak, what is low and despised. And he goes on to say that God had a purpose in that. It was to shame the wise and the strong so that nobody can boast in front of him. But when we look at the church presently, that's the current reality that we see right in front of us, that among the world we are what? We are foolish. We're weak. We're low. We're despised. We see that. But what we fail to see is the way that God sees the church. We fail to see his plan. We fail to see that he has an intention to transform each and every single one of us into the full likeness of his son. And so because that's the picture of the church that we have, when we come to a passage like Colossians 1, it's easy to miss what God is actually saying about Jesus because we don't understand the church that Jesus is the head over. In reality, what is the church? The church is bigger than creation, not smaller. She's far bigger, far more powerful. The church doesn't simply exist within this creation, but she's going into the future one when this present order all passes away. Yes, the church starts her life here, but she doesn't end her life in the old creation. And none of the rest of the nations cross that boundary from old creation to new creation in the same way that the church does. They all end. She's just getting started. She has a role in the future. She's going to inherit the earth and then rule over the earth. We sang about that a few minutes ago. We struggle to see, actually it was the confession, my fault. We struggle to see that reality, however, because we focus, we get caught up in what's right in front of us. We focus on the immediate. And so we look at these snapshots of the church. We look around the room and we think, okay, what are we? We're a fairly isolated group of people who are gathered together, relatively small in the society. And we forget that these isolated groups of people, verse 18, all belong to one body. That there is a unity among God's people, a, a connection, an organic connection. Not simply with the people that you see around you in this room, but also a real connection with those people that we can't see. People who are spread throughout this county. Groups that are gathered across the, the country. Groups that are spread out across the world in other nations. And not just groups spread out in space, but also groups that are spread out in time. And so there's an organic connection between Renewal Main Line and those people who have gone before us in the faith, stretching all the way back to when God announces to our first parents that a Messiah is coming who will save his people from their sins. And not just back in through time backwards, but also forward, 
to all of those people who will come to Christ before he returns. In other words, the church is not tiny. She's not impotent. She's enormous, powerful, larger and bigger, more enduring than this creation. At which, if you felt like joking with me, you'd say, man, Bill, you're getting an awful lot out of that one little conjunction. All that out of and. Look back at verse 18, and you'll see the true reality of the church talked about in other ways as well, similar kind of things. Verse 18 again. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus is not only the head of this organic unity, this body, this church, but he's also the beginning. You think, well, the beginning of what? Not of anything that has its origin in this world. Jesus shows up in history long after the universe was begun, long after our solar system existed, long after our planet cooled, long after it was covered with vegetation, filled with animals, long after humanity began. He comes much later in the history of our universe. So what is he the beginning of? Let's go back in the passage, maybe that'll help. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. Somehow that's tied to his being the beginning. But what does that mean? I mean, it, it, he's not the first person to ever be raised from the dead. If you've got your Old Testament back in, in the back of your mind, you can think back to 2 Kings. Passage there in chapter 4, Elisha raises a woman's son from the dead. Or if you go a couple chapters forward, chapter 13, same book, you have this group of people who are burying someone who's died, but they see this marauding group of, of um, Moabites that are threatening in the land, so they, they quickly take the body and they throw it into an open grave and go hide. But the grave that they pick is the one where Elisha is buried, and as this dead body touches Elisha's bones, this man comes to life. It's another resurrection story. Or you wander into the New Testament. And you see Jesus raise a widow's son from the dead. You see him raise a little girl from the dead. You see him raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus being the firstborn from the dead does not mean that he's the first one to rise from the dead. Firstborn doesn't mean first in time. Actually, we saw that last week, right? It's not first in time. It's what? It's supreme over. And so firstborn means that he's supreme over all of those who have been raised from the dead and over all of those who will be raised. And you say, okay, great. Supreme how? You get a hint of that in a passage like Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. It's talking about Jesus' priesthood, and it says that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That sense of an undying life. And if you're not quite sure that that's really what continuing forever means, you can see back a couple verses earlier in that chapter that Jesus now has the power of an indestructible life. And that's different from everybody else who was raised. Everybody else who was raised later died. Jesus has a different kind of life, a life that you do not find in this universe, this old creation. As a human being, he now has a life that never ends. That's what makes him both firstborn and beginning. He is firstborn. He's supreme over all those who rise from the dead. He's the beginning. He's the first of his kind. The first human being to have a life that will not end. First of his kind, not the last of his kind. That's the rest of us as well. 
And you know how that works. When you trust Jesus to rescue you from God's wrath against your sins, his spirit unites you to him. And so what was true of him now becomes true of you. And you share in his death, you share in his resurrection. And so in his death, your old nature, that part of you that comes from within this old creation, is crucified. When you're raised from the dead, you have a new life that's given to you, something that does not come from within this universe. That's why you keep getting these little glimpses throughout the New Testament of this new creation language. When Paul wants to talk about what, what is it that has happened to you, nothing looks different on the outside, but something is different on the inside. You are not what you were. When he wants to describe that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, if you are connected to Christ, if you're united with Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That means that if you have faith in Christ, right now you are connected to that new creation, that part of the future that is breaking into this present world, part of that great big glorious church that goes all the way back from our first parents to when Christ returns, larger than any nation, greater than any earthly power. That's what Jesus is the beginning of. He's the beginning of the new humanity. Or as one of the commentators puts it, the founder of that humanity. He's the first of a race that is not identified with the old creation. First of a race that's identified with the new. This thing has entered into our creation, broken into it from outside. And we're now the start of something new that eventually will replace this earth. And that's what we owe to Jesus. So whenever you talk about Jesus and about what he's done, you have to talk about this new creation. You have to talk about how he brings it into this present reality, but also how he brings people into it so that they are now part of it. That's why he is supreme, not only over the old creation, but also and supreme over the church. Supreme in creation, supreme in redemption. It's where the church gets her power from. In other words, as you think about the church, the origin of the church is actually from outside of this old creation. The origin comes from Christ. It's outside of this old creation. Our destiny is outside of this creation. That's why we have to get together and say, well, what is the church? <laughs> what are we supposed to do here? What is this way of living that we've been brought into? Why is it so different? And the answer is, what is Jesus doing? Because if he's the head and we're the body, then he sets the trajectory for us. And whatever it is that he is doing is the way that we then live out our own life. And that trajectory is one of sacrifice and service. Again, you can see that in this passage. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, which implies what? That he first had to die. You think, okay, well, why did he die? Well, why does anybody die? We were promised way back, Adam was promised way back, that there was a way to live on this earth. God said, obey me, and you'll live. There's only one thing in the entire world that you're not allowed to do. Don't eat from this one particular tree. Anything else you can do. Now, will you obey me? Will you put me at the center of your life? And God was very clear up front. Let me tell you the condition. If you don't obey me, 
then in the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Adam disobeyed, humans now die, but it's unnatural. It doesn't work for us. We know that we ought not to die. We ought know that, that our potential ought not to end, that our relationships ought not to end, but we die. Why? We die for disobedience. Jesus, however, didn't disobey. He doesn't die for his own disobedience. He had no need to die for himself, and yet he was very clear multiple times with his disciples, I came into this earth in order to die. He came to pay a death that he didn't owe. Who owed that death? It's you and me. He comes to pay that death, to sacrifice himself for his people, and to serve them by giving what they need so that they could live. So our life as a church comes from what? From his sacrifice. From his sacrifice for us, for his, from his service to us. Now you can talk about his sacrifice as sort of the, the ultimate sacrifice. But if you look back through his life, you realize his entire life was full of sacrifice. There's not a single time where you can look in the scripture and find him saying, you know what, this is, this, it's Miller time, it's all about me right now. What do you see instead? You see him constantly pouring himself out. He heals those who are sick. He feeds those who are hungry. Drives out demons from those who are oppressed. He helps people understand this is who God is. Helps people understand this is what it's like to live in my kingdom, in this new creation. Constantly pouring himself out, not satisfying himself. He's living a life of sacrifice and service so that we had a taste of what it's like to live in the new creation, to be with God, to be with God's people. His birth brought him into this world so that we could understand this is what the new creation is all about. This is why it's worthwhile. This is why you should want this. And then he leaves. But there's still a sense of what that new creation is like. The head of the body left, but the body remained. How does his the new creation get expressed? It gets expressed through us expressed through us to each other, expressed to, uh, through us to the larger world. In other words, we now live the same kind of life that he lived. We now live a life of sacrifice and service. See, the church is not a place that you come to to be comfortable. Church is not a, a, a group of people that you enter into and say, I, I've, I've always wanted to just find a place where I fit in, where I could kick back, where I could relax, and where I could just sort of you know, coast throughout the rest of my life. Instead, church is what? It, it's transformation. <laughs> it's transformation from an old way of life to a new way of life. From an old creation lifestyle to a new creation lifestyle. That's what Christ's goal is for the church, that it would be a place of transformation, that we would experience that transformation. So where at one point your life used to be characterized by selfishness, by self-absorption, you have a new life in Christ. It's a joyful life. It's a joyful sacrificial life. It's a joyful service-oriented life. It's marked by you being thrilled. Unbelievable. You, you, you won the biggest lottery there's ever been. You can't believe this life that you actually got. And what are you doing? You're longing for somebody else to taste it, to touch it, to feel it to experience it. And so you don't come to the church with an attitude of, well, what's in this for me? 
What can I get out of this? How does this serve me? How will it benefit me? How much more can I get? You don't come looking to be served. Instead, because he is the head, he now gives you his life. And you've got an opposite kind of movement. One that says, I've already received so much, I can hardly hold on to it. Jesus has served me. Who, who can I serve? Jesus has sacrificed for me. Where can I sacrifice? Not because I have to. Not because I'm guilted into it. Not so that God will finally be happy with me. He's already happy with me. I just want somebody else to be able to experience this same kind of love that I've experienced. And so you wake up and you say, where's Christ today? What is he doing in this world? How can I see what he's doing? How can I enter into that and partner with him? How can I work alongside of him? How can I practice living this new creation lifestyle at home in, with, with, with my roommates, with my family? How can, how can I do this at work? How can I do this at school? How can I live the new creation life in my community? How can I help other people experience this and understand it, learn about it? It's an amazing opportunity. You get to live like God lives. Look at Jesus. He's not miserable. He's not unhappy with this life of sacrifice and service. It's an abundant life. It's a full life. It's a rich life. You don't see him dragging himself. You see him actually running to people in need. He is so filled up with this life, and you could be too. And yet, you all know that there's a problem with this, right? Because we live where? We still live in the old creation. And the old creation has that movement and that, those voices that say, it's, it, it ought to be about you and it ought to benefit you and you ought to be the center. And just like we saw last week, that it's easy to put yourself at the center of creation instead of the creator. It's equally easy to put yourself at the center of the church instead of Christ. And it's easy to take Christ and slide him out and replace him with something else. And when you do that, it, it, it's, really, it's really subtle. When you do that, you will still use all of the church words. You'll still use Christianese. You'll still say Jesus, and you'll still talk about Jesus' stories and, and, and use a theological vocabulary, but you won't have the real Jesus because you no longer have him at the center. Let's see if I can give you an illustration. Suppose that you look at Jesus and you think the primary thing that Jesus offers is an example. He is an ethical, moral example of a good person and a good way to live. Okay, well, if that's who you think Jesus is, what does that mean? It means that you'll come to Scripture and, and you'll read and you'll go, okay, here, here's a story where Jesus is kind, he's giving, and, and, and that looks really good to me. Or here's a story where, where Jesus is bold and courageous. I really wish I could live like that. that. That just looks great. He's a great example. I want to live that way. I want to say those same kind of things. I want to do the same kind of things. If that's the center of your life, you're no longer talking about Jesus because all you see him as is as a great example, someone to stand there in front of you and be observed. And if that's who Jesus is to you, you could replace him with a better example from somewhere else. You could put Gandhi up there and say, boy, that's a great illustration of someone who's giving and sacrificing. Or take Gandhi, I'll put Mother Teresa in there. When you do that, who is at the center? Okay, what, what, when you have Jesus there, what are you doing? You're, you're trying to create a theology, but your theology does not have Jesus at the heart of it. 
Instead, you have something else. He's no longer at the center. Something else is. Something that allows you then to live a morally, ethical life that allows you to think well of yourself. But that's not why Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago. He is a great example to you. But he didn't come to this earth and be born as a baby in order to simply be a great example to you. He didn't come here to be an inspiration to you. He came here to do something for you, something that you could not do. He came here to die and then be raised again. He came to be the firstborn from the dead. He came to open the door to the new creation so that you could enter into it. Here's how you can tell whether or not you've got the real Jesus, whether or not he's at the center and not something else. If your theology does not require the cross in order to live, you don't have the real Jesus. Think about it this way. If what you really needed, if what God thought you really needed to live was a good example, Jesus is not it. Because Jesus came saying, I have to die. And if he didn't really have to die, that's not a good example. To enter into suffering and pain when you don't have to, that's not an example you want to emulate. That's not inspiring. That's silly. The cross has to have a central place in your theology or you don't have Jesus. If your theology, if your practice doesn't need the cross for you to live the Christian life, you're no longer talking about Jesus. If you don't need Jesus to raise, rise from the dead so that you can obey him, you're no longer talking about Christ. If you can just go on autopilot and not depend on him for your day-to-day -day life, you're no longer talking about the Christ who was born in a manger, who was surrounded by shepherds who adored him, who was praised by angels and had wise men come to visit him. You're no longer talking about him because you don't really need him to enter into the new creation. You've simply found a way to have a life that you approve of, makes you feel good about yourself. When you have the real Jesus, your theology directs you to him. It requires you to depend on him. If your theology is driving your, your practice to depend on something else, something away from the risen Christ, it has nothing to do with Christ. You can still talk about Jesus. You can still use Christian terms. But if you're not direct, depending on him, if you're not moving toward him, you're not being directed by him. He's not your head. And you're not finding your life in him. Let's take another example. If you're having trouble living sacrificially, if you say, I see all those needs outside around me, but I'm not gripped by them. What am I gripped by? I'm gripped by my comfort. <laughs> I don't want to step outside of my head. I don't want to step outside of my life. I don't want to move toward people. I like the comfortable life that I have. If you're having trouble caring about other people, it's not enough to tell yourself, oh, I need to reach out more. I need to become more aware of other people. I should really ask people questions about their lives. I need to make myself think about what other people need. I should ask myself, what would Jesus do? It's not enough to ask those kinds of questions. Why is that? Because those questions do not actually link you with Christ. What do those questions do if you start and end there? Those questions give you a list of instructions and a handful of examples 
but they don't show you your need to actually be united with this Christ in order to live that out. In some very important sense, you are redoing the Pharisee exper experiment. How can I live a religious, good-looking life that other people think well of? What is it that you really need? You need some way of connect connecting those instructions, examples, with the Christ who actually lives in you. You need to re-experience the gospel in that moment. You need to re-experience why Jesus first came to this earth. And so you have to start realizing, no, wait, I'm, I'm feeling comfortable. I want to stay comfortable, but Jesus didn't. Jesus left where he was comfortable 2,000 years ago in heaven where he was completely at home, and he entered into this very uncomfortable world for what? To rescue me from my desire to be comfortable. Or you start thinking, well, wait a minute. I... Why am I even thinking about this? I, apparently, my, my conscience is bothered. What does that, what's that an indication of? The Holy Spirit is now confronting me, <laughs> coming and showing me me. Well, that can't be really comfortable for him. He's making himself uncomfortable right now in order for my good. Or you think about the Father's love for you, even in this moment as you're struggling back and forth, that God welcomed you into his world even when you rejected him. Again, not a comfortable move on his part. And he did that, promising that he was going to work in your life until in that future, your natural inclination will not be self-oriented. Your natural inclination will be outward. You remind yourself of the gospel. You remind yourself of what God is doing right now before you start asking, what is it that I need to do? You start experiencing this God in this moment who then empowers me, ch changes me, so that I am moving outward to other people. And then I think about what are those next steps. He said to me, Bill, I, I, I don't think like that. <laughs> I think about what I need to do. And then I either do it or, or I feel bad because I'm not doing it. But, but I, I don't think about how what I'm doing is connected to what God is doing. How do, how, how do you learn that? part of the transformation process, part of the process that you give yourself to, part of the process that Christ began when he made you part of his church, but more than just something that he does to you and you sit back, instead, you now actively participate in this. And, and so it's something that you learn. You learn over time. And this passage points to two essential aspects of the learning process. First one, Jesus is the head of the body. He's the one who governs the church. That's what it means here to be head. And therefore, he's the one who's directing his church in the way that he is. Your goal is to learn to think like he thinks so that when he directs you and guides you, you're actually in line with him. Johannes Kepler, he was a famous German astronomer, lived back in the 16th, 17th centuries. He once said of his work in astronomy, very humble, I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. God already has his thoughts. I just happen to think the same things that he had already been thinking. Well, that's our goal as the body. It's our goal as the church. We want to learn to think God's thoughts after him, to think like he thinks, to approach the world in the same way that he does, to see the world through his eyes, to have his perspective on this world. You have to learn to think like a Christian about life. People talk about this as having a Christian mind or a Christian mindset. It's to look at the world through 
the lens, the, the perspective of how God does, to see what he's doing and to enter into that. In other words, because we come out of the old creation, we have to reorient our minds. We have to reconfigure the way that we approach the world. Tried to do that about 20 minutes ago, right? Church is not smaller than this universe. Church is much bigger. That's that reconfiguration that says, wait, that, that now changes how I approach church. That process, however, takes time. You've spent years, some of you decades, learning how to live in the old creation. Why would you think it's going to take any less time to learn to live in the new creation? That means what? It means you're going to need to do more than take the foundations class here and go to a handful of Christian ed classes. By the way, if you've not taken the foundations class, Pastor Luke has done something amazing in putting that together. You need to take that class. And you need to not think that that's going to set you for, for the rest of your life. Instead, you're, you're going to be what? A lifelong learner. That's who we are as Christians. Our God is infinite. I don't care how much you know about him right now, there's more to know. It doesn't matter how long you study, there will always be more to know. You're never going to get to the end of this amazing God. That means what? If you're bored with God, it's not because he's boring. It's because something else has captured you. You have to study. You have to give yourself to learning. That's part of who you are in this new creation. You say, well, wait, I'm a busy person. What's, how am I going to find time to study? Well, you're going to find time to study just like you find time for everything else that's important to you. You have to make time for it and value it. That means that you need to find time to read Scripture. That means you read Scripture with one question in mind. It's this very simple question, Jesus what do you have to say to me today? And then you just read until Jesus has something to say to you. You pick up the Advent devotional. You go through that. You go through that on your own. You go through that with other people. You make time to read books that try to help you think Christianly about the life that you actually live, about the things that you're concerned about. And so you want to read books that help you understand this is how God has set up relationships. This is what God thinks about money. This is how Christ teaches us to think about possessions. Here's how we think about suffering, social justice, parenting. You have a, that list of books that you are working your way through. It means that you reclaim downtime moments, like commuting, like exercising. Uh, those are great times. I, I, I do a lot of work, podcasts, sermons, during those times that would otherwise just disappear. Smith family's taking a road trip later on this week. We're going to be in the car together for a number of hours. And I sat down with Sally and Danny and said, could, could we reclaim that time? Not, you know, we don't have to do it the whole time, but could we you know, get an audio book, something that would help us grow in our faith? And they both said, absolutely, sure. And, and so I said, well, what do, what do you want to listen to? We've picked out one that uh, is supposed to talk about how does God make sense in the modern world? Now, that might not be of interest to you. It's of interest to us. We live in the modern world. We rub shoulders with people who live in the modern world. Danny's going to college next year. We want to be able to understand that, that, no, our God actually is sensible in this present world. I want to reclaim that time. If you're going to live in the new creation, you have to make time to think like God does. Or you're going to struggle, and you're not going to live well in this new creation. You're going to miss out on the abundant, rich, joyful life that Christ has for you. Okay, that's first. Learn to think like the firstborn who brought you into his church. Second, 
you grow in this process as part of the body. You don't grow simply as an individual. You learn together in community. You wrestle together as you learn what this Christian life is all about. Let me just give you a quick couple uh, snapshots out of my life this past week. Earlier this week, I spent an hour talking with a lady about her life. And after listening for a while, I, 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 I gently interrupted and I said, when, when you talk, I hear a lot about other people. I, I hear about what they're saying. I hear what they're doing. And, and I hear a lot about you. I hear what you're saying and what you're doing. There's one person I don't hear about. And she nods and she says, yeah, God. And I said, yeah, why, why is that? Why, how can you tell me these entire stories in God's universe that, that don't have God in them? It was a great conversation, led us to, to, to moving forward in some very helpful ways. She's not a dumb person. She wants to learn, but she can't learn on her own. She has to learn in community because she needs to get out of the echo chamber of her own head, just like you and I need to. Or I think about the father that I got together with earlier this week over dinner, and we talked about how does being a steward of what God gives us help us understand what it means to be a parent? How does being a steward of what God gives us help us understand what it means to be a parent? How does that help us recognize that God gave you your children? How does that help us understand that ultimately they're not yours, that most, of, most, and most importantly, they respond and reflect back to him, not to you? How does that keep you from trying to raise them to bring glory to yourself? And if that's not the goal, then, then what is? It's a great dinner. Or I reached out to a, a mentor of mine. I, I ran into this problem. I, I've been thinking about something in, in the nature of God, and I ran into a brick wall. And I thought, I, I can't get past this, and I couldn't figure out and so I, what to do. So I reached out to a mentor and said, can we have lunch? And it was really helpful. I don't know that I'm fully there, but I'm not stuck at this point. I, I have some more directions, ways to go. Or think about breakfast with my son. Uh, we got together before school one morning. We talked about men, women, relationships, roles, all those kinds of things, or the countless conversations that Sally and I have as we go back and forth trying to figure out how do we live with Christ at the center of a world that urges us to replace him with ourselves. Or I think about a community group last night. Great time in the study, uh, and then we had dinner, and dinner lasted for hours because we got up, caught up in this conversation about church and about culture and about ethnicity and how all of those things intertwine. And we got so caught up that eventually our host said, you all need to go <laughs> because we have put the kids to bed. If Christ is your head, guess what? You're part of the body. If you're part of the body, you're not an individual. You can't grow on your own. You have to be with your brothers and sisters. They have things to say to you. You have things to say to them. The new creation is here right now. You can live in it with the same kind of joy that Christ lived in it. You can know this life where, where it really is better to give than to receive. Jesus opens that door by being the firstborn from the dead, and then he welcomes you on in. And he welcomes you in to live that life, to enjoy it with him and with your brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for giving us a life that none of us deserve, but that is abundant beyond our wildest imagination. Lord, let us value you at the center of it in all aspects of our life. Let us, Lord, long to, to have you be that center. 
to be upset when we have no idea how you're the center, to reach out to others who can help us. Lord Jesus, will you do that for us, that we might then glorify you and live out the new creation here. In Jesus' name, amen.